0: Welcome to Cows on the Planet, podcast number 21. This series of podcasts will be exploring the science of beef production, beef, and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford, and I'm from the University of Lethbridge, where although there might be undernutrition in a few students, the problems due to overnutrition, such as obesity and type 2 diabetes, are more common. And I am starting to think that maybe liposuction isn't such a bad idea after all. My (laughs) co-host is Dr. Tim McAllister, a Principal Scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, also in Lethbridge. Our topic today is the role of cattle in global food security. I know you've done some traveling in lower income countries in that mythical time before COVID, Tim. But from the perspective of someone who really enjoys an all-you-can-eat buffet, Is there anything in particular that you are looking forward to in our discussions today?
1: Yeah, Kim, well, Bola is a very well-traveled scientist and, you know, like I have been in Africa a few times. I know that uh, beef production is viewed quite differently in Africa than it is here in North America. And I think some of the nutritional implications of beef production in each of those regions also differ. And Bola is an expert in that area, so I'm really looking forward to hearing how he emphasizes the role that beef can play from a nutritional perspective in each of those regions of the world.
0: So to share the bounty of his years of research on global food security, we have as our guest Dr. Bola Adeshogun, professor and director of the Food Systems Institute of the University of Florida in Gainesville. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Bola.
2: Thank you very much, Kim. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you here. I think this is going to be an interesting episode. So, Bola, can you describe the path you took to becoming a professor at the University of Florida and how you started studying global food security in cooperation with the Gates Foundation?
2: Thank you, Kim. So, I'm originally from Nigeria and my high school, grade school education was in Nigeria. Then I went to Britain for my graduate degrees at the University of Reading. And then after that, I was on the faculty at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth for about six years, and I came here in 2001 to be an animal nutrition professor. So I did that for my first 15 years here. I taught classes and did research that was focused on improving the performance of cows, improving the efficiency of Utilization of nutrients, inputs by cattle, improving conservation of forages, uh, fodder that cattle eat. And then in 2013, I saw a very interesting study that, you know, you could say changed my life. And this was a study that was done in Kenya. And it was done with USAID funding at the time. And what they did was they fed school children. Basal diets, and the basal diet was githiri, which is made of beans and corn. And then they supplemented those diets with either oil to provide more energy, or they provided milk, or they provided meat. And what they discovered was that those who got the meat, their test scores, now these are test scores averaged over five school semesters for all subjects. Their test scores improved by 45% and those who got the milk, their test scores increased by 28%. prior to that, I knew that meat and livestock products were important for growth, but I had no idea they had an impact on cognition. And so that really changed my life. And in 2015, we had an opportunity to apply for a $49 million grant from USAID with a bunch of excellent faculty in diverse disciplines at the University of Florida. We're very fortunate to get the grant. The grant was awarded by USAID, which had entered a strategic partnership with the Gates Foundation. So we got just under $9 million from Gates as well. And we embarked on this global project, which has been extremely fulfilling.
0: No, well, that's lovely. And my little take home from that is maybe I should, for the upcoming midterm exams that my students are going to be writing in my class, I should be encouraging them to have a big hamburger before they eat it. Uh, maybe that's not, <laughs> but maybe that's not quite the correct interpretation. But we'll find out more as we go along. So, Bola, in the press and that,
1: we hear a lot more about how we should be decreasing meat consumption as opposed to increasing it. But your work has shown that in many parts of the world, eating more meat could have major health benefits, particularly for the poor. What percentage of the world's population
2: do you think would benefit from increased meat consumption? Thank you, Tim. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I would imagine it is over half, maybe two-thirds of the population because people in developing countries, in Asia and Africa, where we have a huge portion of the global population are the people who are facing this problem of undernutrition. And one of the best measures of this undernutrition is a syndrome called stunting. And it's particularly acute in infants under the age of two in the first thousand days of life. Because if kids are deprived of nutrients, during that stage, their brains don't develop well. So someone said it condemns them to a lifetime of underperformance and underachievement. So to answer your question, I don't know the exact number. I would guess it's somewhere between uh, two thirds of the world population that are affected. And world bad researchers have shown that those whose countries where the population is made up of stunted people, their economic productivity is on average about 10% less in Africa and in Asia, and some countries up to 16% less.
1: Well, that's pretty big numbers. So would that benefit be limited just to developing countries, or would it also be a subpopulation within the United States and Canada that could benefit from that?
2: I think there are populations here in the West that can benefit because, as you know, there are Food deserts in many parts of the U.S., um, here in Florida, I'm sure there are, in Canada, where people can't access or regularly afford a nutrient rich diet. And in many of those circumstances, what people subsist on is diets made up of calories, highly processed foods. And in those areas, I think it's important to use meat and animal source foods to diversify the diet and improve nutrient supply. So I think there are benefits for, and also in many diets of even people who don't live in food deserts, but consume excess amounts of calories. In those cases as well, I think moderate consumption of animal source foods can be used to diversify their diets and reduce some of the associated health risks.
1: So I think it's kind of like any other nutrient you were talking about, a food source, right? It's possible to, you know, not consume enough or to consume too much. And really, it's about balance.
2: Absolutely, Tim. It is about balance. You and I know that people can get intoxicated with water. So for any type of food group you look at, moderation is key. It's very important not to overdo it, but to consume appropriate amounts.
1: So when we're talking about the developing country, could you just increase that by providing more plant-based foods? Why would animal meat or milk provide an additional benefit beyond just increasing the amount of plant-based foods that they could have?
2: Yeah, good question. I'm writing a paper at the moment on this subject, and um, there are a number of unique attributes about the profile of nutrients you get in animal source foods. So if we start, first of all, with the macronutrients the protein the type of protein is different in animal source foods because it is a more complete source in fact some people refer to it as an ideal source of protein that's because it has the full complement of amino acids many plant sources are limiting in certain key amino acids that are vital for growth like lysine and consequently, uh, growth can be stunted if people subsist on plant-based diets alone without getting the right supplements. In addition, the quantity of protein is usually much greater. Now, we think about fats, things like um, important N-3 fatty acids, um, EPA and DHA, are also, um, you know, they form, I think it's a, about a fifth or something of the brain's dry weight. Very, very important for complex communication networks in the brain. In addition to the macronutrients, I think this is where a lot of people really don't realize the benefits of these animal source foods. It's the micronutrients. It's the bioavailability of the micronutrients. That means how much you absorb. So I can look at even spinach. And spinach is a good source of iron. But a woman of reproductive age would have to eat about six times as much spinach as liver or three times as much spinach as beef to get her iron needs met. And about a third of the women worldwide, even many in the West, are iron deficient, have anemia. So these animal source foods are unique because they have more readily available sources of iron, of zinc, of iodine, of vitamin A, And these are among the most deficient micronutrients across the world. There are others like vitamin B12, which you can't get from plant sources. You can't get uh, a natural form from plants. And it is vital for nervous system development and DNA formation, absorption of zinc and iron and so on and so forth. So there are many of these key micronutrients you get from milk, meat, eggs, fish, which, yes, plants have the same micronutrients, but the bioavailability is much less. And that's a very, very important factor.
0: So other than stunting, Bola, are there other improvements in health that have been specifically identified from increased consumption of animal products in undernourished populations?
2: Well, yes, there's stunting. There is also wasting that can be reduced underweight. So we did a study in Kenya, in Burkina Faso, in West Africa. And this study focused on just consumption of an egg a day. And it was kind of based on an initial study that was done in Ecuador, which saw a massive reduction in stunting from just feeding infants an egg a day. So we tried to replicate that in burkina we didn't quite have a statistically significant effect on stunting but we did reduce wasting which is associated with childhood mortality and underweight and i remember the women in burkina faso were so thrilled not just to see that their children were growing well but they were thriving they were more active that even before their husbands were convinced that they should continue feeding the eggs a day the women put their foot down and said, we will continue doing this. Mm -hmm.
0: So is it pregnant women and young children that are the main groups in need for the increased nutrients?
2: Well, I mean, even the elderly. I mean, if we think about the elderly, quality protein is important for building muscle and wasting of muscle can predispose to falls among the elderly. So it's also critical for them. But I think the infant and children, this problem of stunting is so acute. And in many parts of Africa and Asia, about 30% or more of the population of children is stunted. And this condition predisposes not just to nutritional issues and not just to problems with cognition, but to disease, a number of common diseases. Children are more predisposed to them. And a woman who is stunted is likely to have stunted children. Her children are predisposed to be stunted as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's sort of an epigenetic, I think, was the term they kind of used for that. Right, is that, thank right? You. yes. Yeah. So, well, I'm wondering, like, when we look at if we need more meat in those countries then, is it a matter then of increasing the livestock numbers or is it a matter of improving the efficiency of the
2: livestock that are already there? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Tim. In many African countries, they have high, really large numbers of livestock. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Ethiopia has 160 million cows. But on one of my trips there, the state minister said to me, Bola, we have to reduce the number of cows and increase the productivity of the cows. Many of the cows in the global south produce less than five kilos of milk a day, Some only one to two kilograms. So it's a very small fraction of what we would get from a Canadian cow or a U.S. cow. So it's very important for us to increase productivity, not by increasing numbers, but by increasing efficiency. How can we get them to produce more milk from the same amount of feed or even less feed? And so there is a lot that we have learned in the West about feeding more efficient diets that optimized nutrition of animals, of livestock, and also mitigate reduce greenhouse gas emissions at the same time. And we're working with our collaborators in African and Asian countries. They bring the knowledge they have, the local knowledge, the expertise of the conditions on the ground, what hasn't worked before, and jointly we're able to put our heads together and solve some of the most pressing problems by improving efficiency of production. You asked about how, maybe some practical examples. So in Nepal, in Cambodia, in Ethiopia, we have been rolling out ration formulation apps. These are apps that help you to determine the nutrient requirements of animals and feed a balanced ration, a ration that matches their nutritional needs. And in Nepal, for instance, 94% of the farmers who try this approach reported that their cow's milk production was increased. So we're translating these apps. I know some of them are in the app store in local languages so that people don't have to speak English to use them. In some of the countries in Burkina Faso, for instance, we have looked at, we're doing national inventories of what types of feeds they have, creating feed databases, creating maps that show areas of feed surplus and deficit. But then we're also bringing in imported fodder varieties to help that would be adapted to the local conditions, validating the promise for three years and then releasing them. So these are examples of things that are done that will increase the efficiency of nutrient utilization by livestock.
1: So it appears like if good nutrition for the livestock can lead to good nutrition for the people.
2: Absolutely, yes. It's very interesting. When we started this work in 2015, we went to our initial six countries and asked the stakeholders, what's the number one constraint to livestock production and consumption of animal source foods? We were blown away when we heard consistently and unanimously that it was feed, lack of adequate quantity and quality of feed. We heard this from geneticists, from vets, from everyone. So we're focusing on feeds, but not feeds alone. Genetics is very important. Health is important. Management is important. So those are the four pillars. And we work on all those four pillars.
0: From some of the papers I've read, and we had a previous podcast with Dr. Adar in in Ghana. And just wondering about Food safety. Is there a need for increased food safety to ensure the sustainable production of milk and meat? Or is it more important to just look at having just developing a very localized production and home consumption? Because what Dr. Adaw was describing is how cattle are commonly butchered on the ground without regard to food safety but that foodborne illness is, is rare. So just yeah. just your thoughts on what should be done for food safety or if it's important at all, really.
2: Yeah, I would say it's extremely important. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Ari Havala, who leads our food safety work, he would say if it's not safe, it's not food. And the first time I went to Ethiopia in 2015, the butchers were the ones who got my attention because they called me and said, You know, most other professionals, people receive some form of professional training. They said, We haven't received that. And they showed me a PowerPoint presentation. I was blown away. These were butchers who were showing me, you know, a PowerPoint presentation. And they showed exactly what you're saying, Kim backyard slaughter of animals in really unhygienic conditions. And so, what we were able to do, one of my colleagues, Jason Schleffler, went with me to Ethiopia. He trained 20 butchers who trained another 200. And then it's just kind of cascading that way on to pass on the knowledge and the information. So food safety is extremely important. I would say that the levels of foodborne disease in these countries are thought to be low because they don't realize that the cause is the food.
0: Or they're not monitoring them. I've also been asked to review food safety papers where where they're showing the first time they monitor it, then suddenly they find how contaminated some of the meat that is being
2: sold is. Exactly. And I'll give you an example. In Cambodia, we did one of the first, we conducted with our colleagues from ILRI, we conducted a study that looked at the link between illness of people in hospitals and clinics and what they had consumed. And They were looking at the pork value chain because pork is so priced as a delicacy in Cambodia. And they found very high levels of contamination with salmonella and so on. Found that the cost of a single case of foodborne illness was about $62, which is very expensive for someone in a developing country. And so we started piloting some important measures to improve food safety. And this was done in close collaboration with the government. So we really appreciate it. In fact, in all our countries, we partner closely with the government, with academia, and with the private sector. I'll give one more example. Dr. Havala, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, when he sees manure, when I see manure, I think this is a source of nutrients for plants. It's a source of methane, uh, biogas, and so on. When he sees manure, he sees pathogens. So he's leading one of the studies for us in Ethiopia on a syndrome called environmental enteric dysfunction, which is caused by when children ingest pathogens that are in the environment, in the backyard, as they play around, toddlers, you know, anything goes in their mouths. And this causes inflammation of their guts, which prevents absorption of nutrients. So it's a contributor to stunting. And so what he is doing is um, attribution studies to determine which pathogens, what are the reservoirs, and so on. But yeah, food safety is absolutely critical.
1: So Bola, we often hear about how livestock and people, like we're often hearing that they're competing for the same food and that livestock are taking food away from humans. Is that the case in the developing countries or is that kind of a misconception when you apply it?
2: I think it's a misconception in many cases, not just in the developing world. A study from, I think it was from Hillary, showed that about 14% of the dry matter that cows and sheep consume is only 14% that would compete with human food. And that's because particularly for the cows, the sheep, the goats, the ruminants, they rely on forage and byproducts. And these are things that humans cannot consume. And so they're actually helping us to recycle and to produce nutrient to use, to to, to produce growth and and cognition and so on from things that may have ended up in landfills. You know, everything from, you know, citrus pulp to cottonseed hulls and so on, which we feed to our livestock may have ended up in landfills. But these animals help us to recycle them. So I think it's very important to realize that a lot of what they eat is very different from what we eat. And in the developing world, it's even more pronounced because they don't have, in many cases, in most cases, farmers, smallholders cannot afford to feed energy-dense or protein-dense supplements to animals. So the animals subsist on fodder and scraps. And this is a huge area of need because, as both of you know, there are a lot of ways in which we can, even with some of those crabs, improve the nutritional value of what is consumed.
1: So, Bola, we had a pretty severe drought here in the prairies this last year. And in fact, we've had some trouble finding feed for our livestock. There's a lot of corn that's being imported out of the United States now that are being used in some of our feedlots and that. And we're hearing things now coming out of Kenya and Southern Ethiopia and that about the severe drought. I think it's been going on for at least three years or so. That's also devastating some of the livestock populations there as well. And so I'm just wondering, you know, with these climate change types of impacts that we're seeing more and more frequently How is that going to impact nutrition in Africa, you know, in those livestock populations and some of the benefits you've described here with us today?
2: Yeah, great question, Tim. First of all, I think one of the things to to mention, just yesterday we had a meeting with the Gates Foundation and we were talking about pastoralists and climate adaptation came up or climate risks. And, you know, we looked at some maps that showed how Climate change is projected to reduce the current grazing areas for livestock. These current areas where many of the pastoralists are nomadic, they're still nomadic, and they graze their animals over short to long distances. Well, with climate change, a lot of those areas are going to shrink. And so people like us who are animal nutritionists need to devise ways to keep the animals well fed. And some of those strategies are not rocket science. They have been used in the West for many years. Droughts are a major problem in terms of reducing the, the quantity of feed supply, but also the quality. Aflatoxin is a big thing that often rears its head when you have severe drought conditions. And aflatoxin causes all kinds of problems for cattle, but it's also, uh, anyway, let me stop there.
0: So from our previous podcast with cows in Ghana, it seemed that there might be some cultural attitudes that may prevent the women and children from getting access to increased dietary protein. Cause it seems like the best food goes to the men. Like the men have their choice. And it seems like the women are doing like speaking as a female, the women are doing all the work and the men are taking all like the best food. So how do you ensure that the extra protein from animal sources gets to the women and the children who need it most?
2: Yeah, this is a really important subject that you mentioned. When I said earlier that there are four pillars to livestock production, I think you can assume that safely in the West. In developing countries, there is a whole nother area which I call wicked problems. And this issue of gender is a huge one. Like I said, I'm Nigerian originally when I was growing up at home. If I ate my meat first, my hand would be smacked and I would be told to eat my meat last. There are all kinds of taboos about animal source food consumption, which it's a whole subject on its own. Everything from milk is for cats and not for people. If women drink milk, you know, they'll grow beards all kinds of things that will just make you really laugh if you hear them. And we hear these things in our focal countries. We work in, uh, now it's seven African countries and two Asian countries. And it's just amazing. And it would be very funny to hear some of these things, except for the fact that they are truly depriving those who need it the most Mm -hmm. from the important nutrients. Now give one example. In Ethiopia, a lot of our friends, a lot of our colleagues that we work with are Orthodox Christians. I don't know what the exact number is. I would guess about 40% of the folks there. And I'm a Christian and I fast once in a while. I don't fast like they do in Ethiopia because fasting can be 240 days. So they just blow me away. And if you go into a restaurant in Ethiopia, you'll often be presented either with a fasting menu or a non-fasting menu. Fasting means that you don't consume animal source foods on those days. And that's a challenge because a pregnant woman who is carrying a fetus that desperately needs those nutrients may not be able to provide those to the infant. What we understand from talking to folks, from reading papers, is that even the priests are not saying that the pregnant women or children under age should abstain from animal source foods. But it's become a tradition and just peer pressure is such that it's difficult for them to do so. If we take Nepal or India, on the one hand, you have issues with beef consumption or culling cows that are no longer productive because they are venerated by the, the religion. But on the other hand, You also have the caste system, where somebody of a high caste may not want to drink milk from a female who is a Dalit, who is someone who is considered of a lower stature in the caste system. So these are wicked problems. And so in our work, USAID and the Gates Foundation, in their wisdom, had insisted that we shouldn't have just animal nutritionists, but we have gender specialists. We have capacity development specialists. We have people who have made a career of studying these social cultural issues and we work hand in hand with them. And they're the ones who help us to be able to stimulate adoption because just increasing, showing an experiment that something works does not mean that that practice, that improved practice or technology is gonna be adopted. So the science of behavior change is huge and is so fundamental to our adoption in these countries.
0: Just personally I'd like to get some increased adoption of dishwashing by spouse, but well, that's another issue. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bola. This has been just really fascinating. I've really enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for sharing this with us.
2: Thank you so much, Kim and Tim. This has been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Great to have
0: you, Bola. So, Tim, we've heard about the role of meat and milk and eggs to improve the health of people, particularly women and children in low- and middle-income countries, but there are some technical and cultural hurdles to address before this can be a global solution for poverty and undernutrition. What are your takeaway points from what Bola had to say?
1: Well, Kim, I think Bola made many great points. One thing that's a a message, I think, is that meat and milk consumption has to be taken within the context of the nutritional needs of the population of where they're being used. And it's very obvious that, you know, in many regions of the developing nations, meat and milk are absolutely critical for proper nutrition and cognitive development and health of those populations. So we can't broadly apply things that might have some validity in the developed world to the developing world. That's a really important point. I think the other thing is also related to some of the misinformation that Bola mentions, these beliefs that are really not anchored at all in science. It sort of says that that misinformation existed long before we had social media and you know I think we're seeing more of that misinformation that's more broadly spread globally through the internet and that and we need to be cognizant of that and make sure that we're making our nutritional decisions based on the science and with an appreciation of how that nutrition applies to us as individuals
0: so thank you for listening if you have comments about the podcast or suggestions about future podcasts, please visit our Facebook page, Cows on the Planet. We can also be reached by Instagram, at Cows on the Planet, or Twitter, at Planet underscore Cows.
1: Our next podcast will be, Should We Be Eating Invasive Species Instead of Beef? And we'll feature Dr. Ryan Brooke of the University of Saskatchewan. He'll tell us all about wild boars in Canada.
0: We need to thank our production team. Carter Potts is our audio engineer and theme music developer and converts our babbling into a polished product. Alison McNaughton and Uvi Abiscaria are the behind the scenes production crew and Thomas is our social media guru. Now for some words from our sponsors, which are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations We are just looking for the honest opinions of other scientists, farmers, or experts in any of the areas we are discussing.